This is a podcast for first-generation Christian families. We don't have all the answers, and we didn't do everything right. But by God's grace, we are building a legacy. And so can you. You are listening to... We Met Diva! I can remember it clearly. Uh, we had been fighting a lot for the last several months, but we had finally got in a fight, and we had threatened to divorce each other. And it had gotten intense, and you had went outside, and you were sitting in the car, and I don't know if it was running or not. It was running. Well, there you have it. And I walked out, and I was by the window talking to you, and I think I was realizing that if you drive off, that might be it. You might drive off forever. And this marriage that just started like two, two and a half years ago would be over. I remember being frustrated and just tired of all the fighting and being at odds with you, being on different pages. But it didn't start that way. We wanted to live out biblical roles. I wanted to be a mom, you wanted to be a dad. We wanted to have a busload of kids. We joked about getting a bus and filling it with children. We wanted to raise a family and serve the Lord. That was our heart's desire. And somewhere along the way, we drifted from that. And that's what this episode's about. It's about our good beginning, our very rough middle, and how we escaped divorce by falling in love with God's design for the household, especially having children. So we grew up and met in the 1990s. There was NSYNC, there was Jenkos, or Jinkos, however you say it, those big old fluffy pants, everyone wore fluffy, I don't know if that's the right word for it. Baggy, I thought they were baggy, not fluffy. Okay, so there was those baggy pants, Jinkos. Mm -hmm. I remember wearing um, a wallet with a chain, and I remember Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and... Stone Temple Pilots and Smashing Pumpkins and... Yeah, MTV was still kind of the center of culture and it was cool. It was like everything to me. I would come home from school and watch MTV until dinner time. And then after dinner was over, I'd put it back on and watch it some more. What were some of the big big movies of the 90s? I remember watching Clueless with Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd and Brittany Murphy Um I had the soundtrack, and I would listen to that over and over again. Um, I remember watching Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Um, And again, soundtrack was my life. And um, Titanic. There was definitely enough room on that board for both Heat and Rose, but I digressed. A lot of the movies we were watching back then were about – Romance were romantic movies, kind of love stories. It's probably just that age. I mean, we were we were teenagers, and we weren't Christians yet either. We both became Christians in the late nineties. Me in ninety seven, and you in ninety eight. Mm-hmm. And we we briefly met in ninety eight. We met at a Bible study at my friend's house. There was a a Christian family in my neighborhood, and they recognized that there were a lot of kids coming around and hanging out. And they saw the need to disciple the 
kids of the neighborhood and out, do outreach. So the mom asked one of her daughter's classmates, classmates to come and teach a Bible study. And he came for a while, and then he was friends with you, right? Yeah, we met. Um, he was from southern Indiana. I was, and he drove to Kentucky to go to the Christian school that that family, the Liskies, that their kids attended. And they met there, and they asked if he would come to lead a Bible study at the house, and I, and I came along, and I eventually ended up taking it over. Right, and that was in Ohio. So you have the three states. Tri-state area, yeah. Real close together. My best friend in eighth grade lived down the street and behind the family that was hosting these Bible studies. So I would come down and hang out with her, and we got invited to come to the Bible study. So the first week she went, I wasn't able to. I forget why. And so I asked her, I was like, so how was the Bible study? And she's like, oh, it was really good. There was some really great food and some hot guys. And I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm going to come next time. So I came the next week, and there was some good food. She tells that joke all the time, and it's like every other time it lands. So I don't know <laughs> if it's going to land on this show or not. <laughs> I was just at the Liskies to teach a Bible study. I wasn't interested in girls at that point, not because I didn't like girls, but I just got radically saved. I had been an atheist. I had been immoral before that. I had um, just been a really wicked guy, and God had mercy on me and called me to himself. And the main things I cared about at that point in my life was wrestling, hanging out with my friends, and then going out street preaching and teaching Bible studies. And we did that all the time. We drove to the mall and went to downtown, and we had started these Bible studies in, in homes, and this was the first one we started. And they grew pretty big. It was like 20 to 40, sometimes even 50 teens and college age people there. So there's a lot of folks coming and going, lots of girls. And I know, I vaguely recall meeting Emily, but it's not super clear. And I know she knows that we met. And I don't think it's very clear for you either, right? No. So it wasn't like love at first sight. That just wasn't on the radar, uh, at least not at first. There was a weird time for Christian teens. You and I had just gotten saved. And we got saved into what now would be called purity culture. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't through all the churches we were in, but it was just really popular in the evangelical culture of the day. So there was like purity rings and daddy and daughter dances. Some of it was kind of sweet. Some of it was really creepy and weird. But one guy that made things kind of terrible for everyone in the 90s uh, was Joshua Harris. He had come onto the scene. He'd written this book called I Kissed Day and Goodbye. And it was this better way of finding the one you're going to marry and be with forever and love. And he was all about all about finding your perfect true love. That's what people are looking for. They're looking for love that's real, love that's going to last, love that's not going to let them down. We're all searching for true love. The question is, where are we going to find it? seems these days that people are looking for love in all the wrong places. There are over 3,000 dating services in America today. Every year they rake in over a billion dollars. Countless websites are devoted to finding love. You see, our problem is that we don't even know what love is these days. And that really complicates things.
Joshua Harris was a huge deal to a lot of our friends. A lot of the people that was at that Bible study that I led and, and Emily attended, one of our friends, he said he was going to read it like five times before he got married to his wife. And he really did. I owned a copy. I actually gave a copy to Emily, but I was never a fanboy. I just thought a couple of the chapters were helpful. But on the whole, it, it did strike me as kind of strange and almost obsessive. But he did tap into something because I think a lot of people in that age are looking for true love. Like you were looking for true love, right? Yeah, I was totally looking for true love. Um, I, at that time, was just completely enamored with the movie The Princess Bride. And, you know, what is the the theme of that whole movie? True love. Is that how it sounded? Yes. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey! Hello in there! Hey, what's so important? What you got here, that's worth living for. Love. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yes, honey. True love is the greatest thing in the world. All right, I admit it. You did a pretty good impression. Thank you. Now, I'm not interested in dunking on Josh Harris. Yeah, he divorced his wife, he rejected the faith, and he seems like he's going gay to me. The whole thing's terrible. But the clip that we played earlier was from a 1997 documentary. Harris was around 22 and single. You got to take that in. Uh, it's both, you know, kind of humorous, but mostly sad. A young, inexperienced man teaching a whole generation what love is. He says, we don't know what love is. Well, I don't know that he did, obviously. Right? It was early influencer culture, you know, where someone like proposes to be an expert in something that they know very little bit about from direct experience. They're, they're kind of like theoreticians. They lack practical knowledge and the tempering wisdom that's afforded by age. So they're like people prescribing the way, right? Not a way, the way. And they haven't even walked that way yet. And that sort of thing never ends well. And that's certainly what we saw. Yeah, we've seen that over and over again. Purity culture and the courtship movement was a reaction to all the chaos caused by the free love of the 1960s and 70s, which wasn't free love. And it produced a godless, casual dating culture that was full of fornication. And that was something that a lot of young people wanted to avoid. So what Joshua Harris and people like him are talking about was very appealing. It was actually helpful. But it was full of a lot of young people that had lots of zeal but no knowledge. For example, we knew a young lady who was about 19 at the time who was leading younger teens and preteens through I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And do you remember what she called it? She called it the Gospel of Josh. But the sad thing is she ended up getting pregnant out of wedlock just a couple months after that. She came to a group of us and confessed it and repented and asked for forgiveness. And she was a very sincere person. I thought she was a really sweet girl. I thought she was sincere and meant it. The deepest problem wasn't I Kiss Dating Goodbye. There was a lot of problems in that book, but it was youth teaching youth, almost like the blind leading the blind. This girl uh, was 19. She wasn't married yet. 
Uh, she didn't have the wisdom uh, really to guide someone just a few years younger than her in relationships. And that's been the problem with this forever. What you need is wise men and wise women. You need an older generation walking hand in hand with the young generation, wisely helping them apply the principles of scripture to the situation they find themselves in. And that's why this book didn't resonate with me. I grew up in a broken family. I grew up above a bar. I didn't become a Christian until I was 17. I wasn't homeschooled. I went to a public school. Almost everyone I knew went to a public school. And I didn't have like the strong, active presence of a God-fearing father in my life. And so it just was a different world. And I grew up Roman Catholic. I went to a Roman Catholic school from first grade all the way through college, ironically. And um, it just didn't match my experience either. So we were always kind of purity movement, courtship movement adjacent. We had lots of friends in it, good friends that went that way, who we still are friends with today. Uh, But we always were kind of to the side of it. We picked up a lot of good doctrine from it, um, stuff I'm thankful for. But there's a lot of weird stuff that I'm really glad that we avoided. But it was the backdrop of how we got to know each other. We met each other at that Bible study. We got interested. We started talking to each other over the phone, writing lots of letters. We wrote so many letters. And I was very poor. I lived over in Indiana. Emily lived in Ohio. And uh, we still had phone booths back then that you could put, I think, 35 cents in to make a phone call. But it was long distance from Indiana to Ohio. But if I drove in my truck over to Kentucky, which is right over the Ohio River, I could spend 35 cents and talk to her as long as I wanted because Kentucky to Ohio at that time was counted as not long distance. So I'd drive over there. We would talk on the phone. There'd be bikers in the back. I I wouldn't be able to hear. She wouldn't be able to hear. (laughs) I just keep thinking about all the times that you said that you called me. And I didn't answer because I did. I wasn't home. It it killed me on the inside. <laughs> I seriously drove like fifteen twenty minutes, put the money in. I'd call a couple times. I'd wait like ten minutes, and and you still wouldn't be there. Oh man! Once uh, once someone called back and I answered, hoping it was you, and it was like some old woman. <laughs> Sunny. Do you remember the night that? I told you I liked you. Do you remember um, what happened after that Bible study? How did how I express my interest in you? Well, you asked me if you could walk me home, and I said yes. And we went up the street to the gate. Um, there was a yard that we had to cut through to get to my house. Um, and so I remember standing at the gate with you and you telling me how you liked me and but that you had aspirations to be in the ministry and that it would likely mean that you would live a life that was, you know, kind of poor. And be hated. I remember saying that. Yeah, I do remember (laughs) that too. Um, And so if I wasn't willing to go through that, that, you know, that this probably wouldn't work out. But if I was willing, that, you know, it would, could Potentially. So I was just over the moon of the fact that you liked me and because I really liked you. And um, so, yeah, I was blown away. I didn't know I had did not know you had any interest at all. And um, 
And when I gave my sales pitch, which was a rough sales pitch, <laughs> I'm going to be poor. People are going to hate me. I'm going to be away a lot. I'm going to be serving the Lord. I just didn't think that would sell. And uh, and you're like, yeah, let's 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 get to know each other. It, it was kind of mind blowing. Well, the thing that I liked about you was the fact that you just love the Lord so much. That's what drew me to you. Um, I saw the character that you had and the quality of your life and that, you know, you talk about how you had no interest in girls and that, you know, all you thought about was like wrestling and Bible studies. And so just that that focus and just your you being driven um you were very single minded and i just i just was um i love that about you so i did ask your dad for permission to start dating you dr mayer he was a captain in the navy he was a dentist he was roman catholic but a, a moral man as moral men go and a man i respected almost immediately from meeting him he did give me permission to date you. He had house rules, couldn't be inside the house when he and his wife weren't around. And I did everything I could to obey his rules. And we ended up dating for four years. Uh, we never had sex. We definitely struggled to keep our hands off each other. I, I don't, I would not recommend to anyone to date for four years in your teens. You're, you're kind of full of hormones and, and desire. And I, I worked out a lot and I took a lot of cold showers and it was still difficult. So while we're dating, the thing that I think we talked about most was getting married and having kids, right? Yeah, we talked a lot about having a family. We talked about our life together that we wanted to have and our dreams and how many children we wanted to have. We said we were going to have a bus full. Yes. Yeah, we joked about buying a short bus and filling it up with kids. And why is that funny? Well, because now we own a, a, a Ford Econoline E350, which is classified as a minibus. Commercial vehicle. It is. It's a 15-seater. We took the back out, and now it's an 11-seater, and we have room for groceries and suitcases when we travel. And it has seatbelts. The entire time we were dating, we went to what today would be called a complementarian church, though they didn't really use that phraseology. It was very pro-family, pro-marriage. They were encouraging young people to pursue marriage. And it was just assumed that you would have children and you would have several children. It wasn't quiverful. It wasn't a major feature of their actual teaching. But it was the undergirding assumption and the example that we're provided with. And that was, that was good. So we really valued those things. So we both graduated high school you a few years after me, we started going to college. And that's where we started to drift. And I think there were three major components to our drift. The first one was me getting caught up in a careerist mindset. One of the stipulations of me and you getting married was that I would go to college and graduate with a degree. So I pursued a nursing degree. Um, it was an associate, so it was a two-year program. I stretched it over three just to kind of lighten my load. And when I went into it, starting out, my whole mindset was just, you know, I'm 
I'm doing this to kind of fulfill this um, commitment or obligation to my dad. And by the end of it, um, I was like considering how to get my master's and was considering becoming a professor in a nursing college. So my whole slowly, I think, being surrounded by so many feminists, like, you know, when I went into it, it was kind of I could take it or leave it. And by the end of my college experience, I was considering like, okay, how do I make this into a career? Second, the leadership of the church that we were at kind of went through a transition and we got a lot of bad counsel and I had an aspiration towards the ministry and they were pressuring me to kind of become what I'd call a nice guy, right? Just this sort of fake humility, go along to get along. Really soft-spoken. All that stuff. It wasn't wasn't me at all. That's not how I'm wired. Not that I'm rude. I'm just not what you would call Mm soft-spoken. And I wanted to be approved for the ministry and do whatever these men told me was biblically required. And it wasn't like they told me the 11th commandment, which is thou shall be nice, right? Agreeable, sort of guy that goes along to get along that is a people pleaser, but it was unspoken. It was assumed. I can remember Emily losing respect for me because I wasn't the bold, fiery person I once had been. Eventually, we just left that church and I gave up on the ministry for a time. I started thinking maybe I would just get a master's in history, get a PhD in history, become a writer and a professor at a college. And all that promise that I made to Emily, we're going to go in the ministry. I'm, I'm going to be hated for speaking the truth and we're probably going to be poor. And if you're not with it, you know, this isn't for you. Well, that fell by the wayside. And I lost that clarity of vision, and I lost that strong male leadership. Bold, clear leadership is a service. It's one way that a man, a husband, serves his family. And I wasn't giving that leadership. I wasn't saying, let's have kids, let's buy a house, let's do this or that. I was being more or less passive. I was being carried by the waves of life. I wasn't plowing through them. I just wasn't leading, and it had major consequences, which gets us to the third reason. We decided to delay having children. I think that was because we took on student loan debt, which is one of our major regrets for your, for both of our degrees. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to work for a while and pay that all off. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we both had aspirations towards higher degrees, so we'd have to spend more time in the university, and that's not a good time to have children. Were there any other reasons? Well, we had gotten some counsel just to take the first year or so and just enjoy being together and being alone and how once you have children that you never get that time alone back. And, you know, if you do, it's like as an empty nester and that's different than, you know, when you're a newlywed and starting out to go on vacations and just to be alone and get to know one another. And that was the counsel that we were given. One of the first things we did was get cats when we were married. Yeah. And I think that's because everyone wants to have a little thing they take care of. But if it has whiskers, it's not a baby. All those things swirled together into a toxic mix over time. It wasn't all at once. But basically, Emily was living a life and I was living a life and it wasn't the life that we talked about. And we were pulling apart. We are going different directions. And that's what led us to that day where she was in the car, the car was running, she's getting ready to drive off, and I was there 
thinking this is it. That's how he got there. So what was it that helped us escape divorce? Again, I think we can kind of boil it down to three things. First, as we talked out there in the parking lot and then as you got out of the car and we came in the house and we talked, we realized that we really did love each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. we were good friends. We enjoyed time together. And though we had been fighting so much, it wasn't always like this. This was actually the exception to the rule of our relationship. It had been the rule for maybe the last year and a half or so. But we went on lots of walks together. We went on a lot of vacations together. We had lots of fun experiences together. And we just like hanging out with each other. And as we talked, we realized there was still something there. And anyone that gets married gets married because they care about each other, or at least they once did. And I think rediscovering that is key to escaping divorce. So what was the second reason? Well, perhaps you remember this. When I was at the side of the car, one of the things I said to you is that we can't get a divorce because we made vows. And we made vows to each other. But what I had in mind is that we had actually vowed to God that we had stood up there on that stage and said, I do, back and forth, and made promises. And we did it in the name of God. And it wasn't a hasty vow. We went through marriage counseling, as frustrating as that marriage counseling was. Mm -hmm. But we went through all that. And we were very careful and thoughtful as we approached marriage. We weren't hasty at all. And we made these vows and we did it in front of our loved ones, some of which who weren't Christians. And we had asked the pastor to preach the gospel. That actually is the reason why I got out of the car with you was because as soon as you said we had made vows together, it just struck a chord with me. If you're thinking about getting married, make sure that you have a high view of vows, of making promises to God. And if you're in a struggling marriage, revisit your vows. Let them strengthen you so you can stand your ground through difficult seasons. I think you know what the third reason was. Yeah, the third was us delaying having children, Um, us abandoning our desire to have a family. And I think that was... I think that really impacted me, not just like emotionally and spiritually, but I think on a physical level too, because I think my body like knew that that was the next natural progression of our marriage was to become a mom and have a baby. And so there was everything in me that wanted that. And um, you were you know, becoming this nice guy. And we would have these talks about, you know, should we start having a family? Should we try to get pregnant? And you would, you would say, well, if you want, and you would leave it in my court. I think that's like the nice guy approach, you know, to. to, I thought I was respecting your will and, you know. Right. To, you know, to let me make that decision, you know, because it's my body, that kind of thing. But because I had all this conflicting worldview going on, on one hand, I wanted to be a wife and a mother and a stay-at-home mom and have children. But then there was this other side of me that was being pulled toward careerism and working as a nurse. Um, And so when it was – when you would come to me and we would talk about having a family – I would be conflicted on what I should do. And it 
I think I honestly felt like. Well, I would fail you because I I wanted to have kids right away. And I would float it and you'd kind of get open to it. But then when you'd ask me, then I ultimately would say, well, whenever you're ready. Well, I think I felt conflicted about it because I felt like, oh, we just took out these student loans and I should finish paying those off before we should start, you know, settling down and having a family. So I felt like I had to keep working um, to pay those off. And um, and then I just was just straight up intimidated about being a mom because of the responsibility of, you know, being in charge of a living person, you know, very different from a cat or a dog, you know, um, and I had very little experience with children. I was the youngest in my family, um, and I babysat a handful of times, but I can remember one time in particular where I babysat like an infant, and I ended up having to call my mom to have her come over and help calm the baby down because I like did literally everything that I knew to do, and I could not get this baby to stop crying. Um, I remember thinking like, oh, this is why they say don't shake a baby because <laughs> I was so frustrated because I was like, I changed you, I burped you, I fed you, I walked you, I did all these things and you're still crying. I don't know what else to do. And so I just put the baby in the crib and walked away and called my mom and just was like, I don't know what to do. So she came over. But so the idea of being responsible for a living soul and thinking of that experience, like I was super intimidated about having kids, even though I really did want them. I could also remember you being what I would describe as depressed. Yeah, I was really down um, emotionally. I think it was wearing on me. I think I felt very aimless. And um, I can remember before that night where we had that major fight, it was like a couple weeks before that was the most recent time that we talked about like, oh, should we have kids? And and I was like really heavily considering it. And then I was like, no, I shouldn't do this. This is not the right timing. This would be irresponsible because of all these other things that we should do first. And um, after I said that we should wait, then like the next week, I just remember feeling really down. I remember talking to some older pastors I knew, and they said this is very common for women to get depressed when they're not having children, when they, you know, they're a single or not single, a married woman not having children. And I remember reading a scripture where Hannah wanted a, a child so bad, mm-hmm. and then Rachel said, Give me children or I die. And that is something that is really neglected. Churches don't teach the consequences of delaying having children, the potential consequences anyhow. And it became very clear to me that this was one of my major failings. I needed to tell you, look, if you get pregnant, I will take care of you and all your children. You'll never have to work again. And matter of fact, I want that. I want that now. Let's have a baby. Which meant that I needed to stop taking the pill. Um, I had asked several doctors and nurses that I went to school with or worked with, and everybody had reassured me that it was not an abortifacient, that it just prevented conception. And so I had been taking it, um, not fully understanding the 
the way that it worked, the mode of action. Anyway, so I regret that I ever took it. But so we decided we were going to start a family. So I stopped taking the birth control pill. And after two or three months, I started worrying that I wasn't able to get pregnant. Yeah, you went from being scared of getting pregnant to being scared to not being able. Yeah. And that's, I think, a lot of women aren't given the freedom to pursue children and realize actually how bad they want it. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened after a couple of months? Well, we finally did get pregnant with Hudson, and I was so happy. We made a person. He's upstairs right now writing a paper on Thomas More's Utopia. He's going to get his driver's license here in a couple months. He knows God. He fears God. He goes to church. He's the oldest sibling with seven other siblings. And here's a crazy thought. Had we not worked that out, eight people would never have came into existence. Can you imagine a world without our children? No, that's a nightmare. But we did it. We escaped divorce by and through the grace of God. And our desert marriage became an oasis of life and fellowship. An oasis is exactly how I like to describe our marriage. It is seriously a shelter from a difficult world. I love coming home to you. I love hanging out with you. I love hanging out with our kids. I love hearing your stories. I love your text messages. I love everything about it. It's wonderful. But it wasn't always like this. It once was very difficult. We had a rough start, certainly a rough middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here we are today, by the grace of God, uh, living a wonderful life. There's still a day-to-day struggle, but I look around and I see how God has richly blessed us. I remember when I prayed for all that I have now. Absolutely. Amen. We prayed for our children. We prayed for friends. We prayed that God would open a door to plant a church, especially on the east side of Cincinnati. We have been praying for these things for years and years, and to see God answer our prayers has been an amazing thing. It, It is just a testament to his grace and kindness. But again, it wasn't always this way. It, it was a struggle. It still is a struggle. Not the same struggle. We're, we're stronger. We're older. We're wiser. But there's still a lot of miles for us to walk when it comes to the path that God has for us. And everyone has to walk their own path. And there will be those that will tell you, here's the blueprint. Here's the template. Here's the exact way to do it. And that sort of message is very appealing when you're coming from nothing, when you're coming from a broken home, when you're coming uh, to Christianity as a first-generation believer. But God doesn't give us a Holy Spirit GPS. God gives us his Bible, which we have to study and then wisely apply to the particular situation that we find ourselves in. Emily and I met in the 90s. Many of the people listening to this podcast did not meet in the 90s. They're going to deal with a very different situation. And you're going to have to figure out how to apply God's word to that situation. People want particulars, but God gives principles. Not that there aren't any particulars, but Scripture gives examples of how to apply principles. And that's where we're going in this podcast. That's what this podcast is all about. It's about how do you take the principles of God's word and apply it to your situation, to your time where God has you. We're going to talk about everything 
from breastfeeding to home birth to children dying to bankruptcy to all the difficulties that visit a person's life. But in the midst of all those difficulties and trials, there can be so much beauty. And our marriage, which was coming to an end, found new life as we repented and kept our vows. And in the middle of that, God blessed us with a child, with our first son, Hudson. Wherever you may be. Whatever you may be facing. We pray that the God of peace would strengthen you and bless you with a household that would last for generations. The tide comes in Pulls some sand back into the ocean The land is lost and other fight it cannot win The cycle begins ground just to be reborn again the cycle begins.